and we're live! Welcome to another episode of the Geek Book Club, your monthly geek reading repository. Uh, joined, as always, by my lovely bearded co-host, uh, Mr. Andrew Wallace, at Fat Produce on Twitter. Happy holidays, bud! We're, we're coming back. Like, happy holidays! This is, this is Boxing Day that we're recording this, so happy Boxing Day. Happy Boxing Day to you! Yeah, this is, uh, how, how was your holiday? Oh, it was great. So this was the first year our, our little daughter, Lex, uh, she was really fully aware of the Santa bit. You know, like, you know, we went to the mall, we visited Santa, we took photos and she started to click that she could get things like she, she finally <laughs> understood this process. So she would come up to me and be like, um, I want a guitar. You're like, well, I, we, we can maybe get you one at the store later, but it's going to be Christmas soon. And so let's not get one right now. And she would go, oh, uh, ask Santa for a guitar. <laughs> and you're like, okay. And so then she goes running up to my wife a, a couple of days later and she's like, I, I want a laptop. <laughs> and my wife goes, no, little girls don't need laptops. And she goes, ask Santa for a laptop. And my wife, it, like one of the most brilliant parenting moves I think I've exhibited, I, I've witnessed yet. She goes, no, daddy buys laptops, not Santa. And little girls don't need laptops right now. Oh, that was a good <laughs> one. Right off the top of her head. She nailed it. It was Ooh, excellent. That, that's you, good. We had, did you get everything oh, sorry, you, <laughs> you wanted for Christmas? You uh, eat some good food? Oh, Oh, absolutely. No, so, so I have so a great, great story that we had. So my brother, I have a brother with with autism, an older brother with autism, and and he he'll go and he'll memorize uh, films and and what and whatnot. And we're a huge Star Trek group in my family. Well, uh, I got him the DVD set of the Star Trek the original series, and and I had it all wrapped up. He never saw it. And so we had so yesterday during Christmas, we had he picks up his present with his name on it, and he goes my CDs and then oh. sets it down. And I'm like, do you have x-ray vision, Kyle? Like, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So we had a, we had a great, uh, a great Christmas in this household. So yeah. Excellent. Well, I'm happy to hear it and, and happy holidays to you and to, to everybody who's tuning in. I, I, in the live chat, we already have Ms. Stephanie Carlson and original Samsung They're They're joining us here and we'll, we'll have some chatter going on, but the, the geek book club is our monthly online uh, book reader club thing where we, uh, we put out a book and a month later we talk about it. And so uh, this, this month's book, the, uh, the, the book for December was uh, Cory Doctorow's little brother, 380 pages of young adult novel, sci-fi, anti-authoritarian, bringing down regimes of totalitarianism, spunk and piss and vinegar. Uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not working off a script, so this is going to be another fun, like, casual chat podcast. <laughs> but, uh, so this is, uh, this was, uh, my second return, uh, my second return. This was my return to the, uh, the literary stylings of Cory Doctorow. I had previously read Pirate Cinema, uh, which is very similar in tone. Uh, young kids having to face an authoritarian regime with technology and, and their cunning and their wit and their skill. And uh, this book, I feel, was significantly more successful in conveying the tone of uh, what Cory Doctorow was trying to accomplish. Have, had you read anything else by Doctorow before we uh, we, no. we pitched this? 
actually, no, this is my first, my first exposure to Cory Doctorow. And, and it was really just, it was fascinating on, on multiple levels. And, and it was a really satisfying read. So I'm really excited to read, to get into other, other of his works too. Well, and I, I hadn't really been keeping up with him and you, you like, we pointed out like, oh, I read the wiki and you're like, oh, I probably should have done at least that much homework, but there's apparently (laughs) a sequel to this book. And you're like, oh, I, I maybe should have read that too. But uh, just so that folks can kind of get up to speed with the author that we're talking about, this is from Corey Doctorow's Wikipedia page. Uh, Corey Ephraim Doctorow is a Canadian-British blogger, journalist, and science fiction author who serves as co-editor of the blog Boing Boing. He is an activist in favor of libera- liberalizing copyright laws and a proponent of the Creative Commons organization using some of their licenses for his books. Some common themes of his work include digital rights management, file sharing, and post-scarcity economics, which makes total sense that the first time I picked up one of his books, it was because he was putting out his own book under a public domain license. So you could download it for free. And I believe, even though we have a link where you can shop for this book, and obviously we're a big, uh, we're, we're always in favor of supporting your local library. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that you can legally acquire Little Brother uh, under a public domain or a Creative Commons license, and read it yourself. Like this is mm-hmm. a this is Doctor O is one of those authors who sort of stands by what his protagonists in his books <laughs> claim to live or stand for. And so this is a, an author who is who has been very proud to put out his books for free. And so if you do want to support him as an author, you can buy his stuff. But he wants you to read it regardless. Oh, absolutely. And, and I and I realized that you could get it for free after I got my second overdue notice so uh, from the library. Uh, but, so, yeah, it, it, it just, was... Just tell me, send, me, send me your library's address, and I'll write them an apology note. And you know, <laughs> uh, Andrew Wallace was out with tuberculosis, and that's why he couldn't return the book. And, and <laughs> love... So I had to sanitize the book for you guys. <laughs> page by page. Yeah. He is, is yes. this novel because of the TB. <laughs> <laughs> Merry Christmas. Uh, yes. But, oh, boy, this, well, and this book was written, and one thing that's, that's important, this book was published in 2008. Yes. So, and, and in many ways, uh, well, and I guess, and we should probably get into a little bit of the plot too, but in many ways, in many ways, it's timeless and, and, and current, but also in many ways, it's a product of its time. Yeah, as well, which, that's definitely what I want to get into. And, and before we get into yes. any kind of spoiler territory, because anytime, like the mark of a good science fiction author is, I mean, there's there's always that game, like, can you predict the future? Um, really, yeah. good science fiction is taking the ills of that day and then using some kind of futuristic setting to be able to discuss what's happening in that time. And so Little Brother definitely exists as a commentary to what Dr. O was witnessing of its time. He just happens to also be writing about a so, somewhat in the, in the near future America, and he gets a lot right as to how near future America was going to be dealing with political issues and with terrorist issues and with security problems. Um, but the things that he are of its time definitely stand out as not being what we're dealing with. Today. Yes. So we yeah. should probably get in just generally the plot of the book um, mm-hmm. centers around a group of high school students 
uh, and and uh, sort of the leader of an ARG team. So there's this very popular alternate reality game that these kids in high school are playing. And uh, the leader of this one little crew of ARGers is a is a gentleman by the name of Marcus Yallow. And uh, mm-hmm. this is this all takes place in a near future San Francisco. And I, I don't know, I was getting kind of, kind of the impression that because it was written in because it was published in 2008, that their near future was pretty close to our current day. So absolutely. Sort of a, That's a, yeah. 2012 or 2014 kind of era. I mean, I figured it was it was just about current when they were saying when they were making jokes about how old MySpace was. <laughs> so <laughs> okay yeah no 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 that makes sense yeah because uh, <laughs> we can always make jokes at the expense of myspace Poor yeah uh, i'll never yeah i'll never miss having going to a page and having obnoxious music blaring in my headphones that make my eardrums explode but oh, you know so great so uh <laughs> these, this group of kids are are argers they're playing this game they cut class to go and try and solve the next part of this real-world puzzle in a very sort of, um, what was the name of that game before? Ingress. Oh, so, oh so, yeah, Ingress, yeah. I, I don't remember what the name of the game is. It's like Haruko-san Fun Walk ARG-san. Oh, I'm, I'm so close in the book here to seeing it, but it'll take uh, so, me. Like, oh, Haruko Fun Madness. Haruko Fun Harajuku Fun Madness. Yeah, we're, we're I just we're, we're butchered that, but that was that was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I apologize for anyone who has better grasp of it. Sorry, this Ozark boy is terrible with saying other things. <laughs> so I mean I like I am the Hispanic kid that can barely speak Spanish. So uh, I, I'm gonna call him Mulligan on that. Um but they're they're out there, they're they're playing this game and, and the description of the game is sort of like a little bit I heart bees meets ingress and they're out there trying to solve mm-hmm. these riddles, but they've cut class. And this is a society that is um, already a step ahead of, I think where we are in doing things like tracking kids. So schools already have things like uh, cameras that have gate recognition. So Marcus has to describe what he does to defeat these cameras so that they don't alert that one of the kids is trying to, you know, uh, skip school. But while they're out trying to solve this puzzle, a terrorist attack uh, blows up the Bay Bridge in San Francisco. And because he and his group, he and his team are very close to the uh, to the actual attack, are very close to the epicenter. And they're all walking around with this this high tech gear trying to solve these puzzles. They get picked up by the Department of Homeland Security and are whisked off to an undeclosed detention facility because they could potentially be combatants. And there mm-hmm. they're interrogated for for about a week, right? It's something like five days. Well, well, and one big thing too is there. Well, while while this attack happens, uh, there's obviously the crowd, the crowd panic mentality, yes. and one of it, and the main character's best friend gets stabbed, gets injured, and stabbed. Right. And so, though, so he so. They they flag down the authorities to try and get help, and they get taken away. And they're care and they are they are uh, are hooded like terrorists. Is that they're, they're they're citizens, and they're trying to to mm-hmm. get the attention of law enforcement. And by stopping one of the vehicles, that's what triggers this armed response from Homeland Security to whisk them away mm-hmm. that they could be potential combatants. Absolutely, and and so they're taken 
uh, what was it? He is, they are hooded and beaten whenever they're at, they ask why what's what's going on and and taken to uh, taken across water and taken to a facility and they are taken there for about six days, I believe, is what it is. Yeah. And and in the process, there is psychological, basically psychological torture. Uh, humiliation, including it have to, interrogation for, techniques. Yes, involved and, ha- in, uh, and, and this is ex- sleep deprivation. Uh, also, like lack of food, uh, mm-hmm. making them urinate themselves. Yes, yes, and and it, this is very much like a product of the times because this, this I all I could think of was Abu Ghraib. Exactly during yeah, during we, this we were, whole we were procedure. Very sensitive to the United States role or how complicit our government was in this type of information extraction. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's also, I think what the book does brilliantly right from the beginning is the fact that we're, we're focusing in on kids for a young adult novel. Um, Mm -hmm. The fact that we're focusing in on kids, they have to address things like after a terrorist attack where thousands of people have been killed because of the collapse of this bridge, their parents wouldn't have known that they had survived. Mm-hmm. There was no notification. This isn't normal law enforcement. No one called their parents to say, hey, we arrested your kids. This was treated as a direct threat. So they were armed combatants in a potential terrorist situation, which means all of your Miranda rights go out the window. Oh, yeah. And, and they actually do have to address the fact that days later, when Marcus finally uh, capitulates, gives Homeland Security the information that they want, which involves unlocking and unencrypting his cell phone, handing over all of his personal accounts for his email, for his social media. And then there's obviously nothing there because he's not, he's not a terrorist. Um, right. Still humiliating him every step of the way. And then saying, well, now that we have all of your information, we can track you and we can do anything we want. And if we see anything we don't like, we're going to pick you up again. Now you can go home five, six days later and then you can't say anything to anybody. Right. You want know, to sign these non-disclosure agreements saying that any violation of the non-disclosure is basically going to be a criminal act. Oh, yeah. Well, and and, and uh, along with it, it's they they use their uh, big, big parts of this are the fact that they use that the Department of Homeland Security in, in this use use this attack as an excuse to make people disappear on there also like to to be able to like they can say well you can do whatever you we want to you because you could just disappear from this attack um also the fact that um they as they go along and 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 it's the whole interrogation is taking place from marcus's aka mikey's uh uh, that's his that's his uh, screen name uh which is which is important throughout for his internet identity uh they it takes place from his point of view, and it's and it's ex- it's pretty extreme interrogation, enhanced inter- interrogation techniques. Well, as we go through, and he ends up meeting with his group of friends uh, it, within the prison, and then after they get out, he he was the, really the only one who was really abused and yeah. uh, subject abused, and it's because he would because when they asked him to unlock his phone, he was saying, "I want a he lawyer." He refused. I, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah, he refused, and it was all out of spite. It was all they and they they put him through this all out, out of pure spite, mm-hmm. and and it just shows the level of desperation and incompetence that of the people who had all the power over him 
to, to go so through. Did, and that and the beginning of this book really read like the 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 fear. I, I, I want to use a phrase like fear mongering, but we know that governments have been complicit in these sort of black site programs. So mm-hmm. it's not fear mongering isn't the right word. And I, I would be making too light of this kind of situation to use that phrase. But it, it's Boxing Day and I'm on three days worth of tamales. <laughs> a lot of I had a lot of bourbon yesterday. Um, so but but it, it this to me, the, the intro to this book was very on the nose of the fears that many people had as regards the United States government in the wake of uh, sort of. 2001 9-11 era United States mm-hmm. where there were a lot I mean, of jerk reactions. We were all having to like get strip searched in, in airports. Uh, the Patriot Act, were, the Patriot Act getting signed with very few of the actual people signing it, actually having read that legislation. And this felt like the commentary on what if, what if these powers mm-hmm. got out of control? What if, because, you know, again, we're talking about giving these types of powers over to someone in a TSA uniform. We're not always oh, talking absolutely. about the most well-meaning individuals or the most honorable or upstanding uh, members of our society. Or competent. So <laughs> well, uh, yeah, uh, you know, I, I really want to believe that there are people out there that are trying to do a good job. Oh, absolutely. They're in an infrastructure and a bureaucracy that... Um, that that sort of takes the reins of, of of power, especially when we talk about things like uh, officer discretion. Like, oh nope, there's yes. a rule, you know, no zero tolerance or three strikes and you're out or this or that, and it, it like it absolves them of of any kind of decision making. It absolves them of any kind of human decency, and they're allowed to act with impunity because there's a rule, and that's the rule we need to use. This kid refused to open his phone, so now we have a rule that. We're allowed to, you know, use enhanced interrogation techniques on him. You know, like that to me sort of was there are moments where this book, I feel, gets a little too soapboxy and it kind of punches you in the nose. And that to mm-hmm. me, that initial description of the uh, the indignities that he suffered read of the fears of someone from 2007, 2006, uh, cobbling together their thoughts on where this authoritarian regime in the United States could go and well and wrapped up in a lot of that sort of aclu uh, 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 scariness well and you know after after i read some accounts i was reading some accounts of mm. gitmo uh, uh before like uh, i read a little uh, some, i went so there are a couple of different instances in this book uh, that, uh, of that of examples that show and these techniques and i went and read a couple of different accounts of of people who suffered through these these techniques and it's it was very it was basically taken straight from it and and i found and and i mean gosh this is some stuff that's still going on and and so like it it is does hit it on the nose but in a lot of ways it needs to be because it because people don't want to think about it people who don't people who don't I guess I mean in the escalation that in that short period of time, and one of the things that I don't think Dr. O has quite gotten right was the the application of this type of authoritarianism on United States citizens. Um being yeah. a thing that I feel I felt was a little overly escalated. But I guess, you know, maybe part of that isn't necessarily way too off the mark when we look at things like uh 
like what was that that oil pipeline where they were jailing journalists just for taking pictures of it so mm-hmm. we've seen examples i think where our our uh, law enforcement has gotten a bit out of hand and out of touch with oh, the and citizenry that it's supposed to be not just not just law enforcement but also news coverage which we should get into later because yes, yes, because that's a great part of this book. oh well that is a great part but it's also an unintentionally almost i feel like has become more is a more relevant part of this book now than <laughs> what Gar- than, than it was then and really? it's and it's it's scary. It's scary as hell. And, really and that, that, you're, you're absolutely right. That was the most haunting part. But to get to that point where, where we <clears> go from Marcus being detained and finally being released is after he's finally released and he, he feels like the, the sort of the pressure of the situation has finally been lifted and he takes some time to reflect on what he actually suffered through. It basically emboldens him to start a resistance movement to the occupation of San Francisco by the Department of Homeland Security. Mm-hmm. And hack so, the planet. <laughs> hack the planet, totally. <laughs> so, so he starts utilizing his resources because uh, he's a savvy kid. He he understands like, sort of the basics of like digital security. And he, he starts trying to activate people through an ad hoc network that he creates through a string of Xboxes. And uh, it's called the XNet. Mm-hmm. And using various distributions of Linux that they're able to better mask their online activities using, uh, you know, uh, Wi-Fi access points from their neighbors and distributing this information. Uh, he he starts to build some momentum in fighting what he views are the more uh, re- uh, reactionary and authoritarian aspects of the Homeland uh, Department of Homeland Security's response to this terrorist attack. So things like uh, you know, they're tracking everyone's movement through easy pass style tap and pay systems. So mm-hmm. your car goes over a bridge and it hits the the, the 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 easy pass and your easy pass is automatically deducted from the toll road. And what people don't realize is that these things are being tracked now all over the city. So it's not just the transaction of that. It's that the Department of Homeland Security is aware of every single one of your movements 24-7 whenever they move. So Marcus starts taking um, RFID scanners and he starts teaching people how to clone them so that all of a sudden people are showing up all over the city in ways that are very unexpected. And the only metric that Homeland Security was using to flag people was unusual movement. But suddenly everyone in the city is starting to look like they've got unusual movement across the city because these kids are out there cloning RFID scanners. And it becomes that 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 debate. The, the book is firmly in from Marcus's perspective and Cory Doctorow is the voice of Marcus is firmly on the side of personal liberty, personal freedom. And so I don't think this book does a very good job of handling the freedom versus security debate. You know, the members of our society who might be willing to trade some of their personal liberties for more security. Uh, while, of course, I know there are quotes from our founding fathers who would disavow us of that notion. Yeah, yeah, they 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 talk about it directly in this book. <laughs> they, they talk about it directly in the book. Direct quotes. <laughs> Did you feel that that the way the the counter debate to Marcus's position was framed was was intentionally meant to be straw man, or do you think that because Cory Doctorow, I think, has an audience in mind? 
for who he's trying to reach with this book, an impressionable younger adult mind that he went out of his way to frame the debate from Marcus's perspective that one sided. Yeah, I, well, and I, I, I do think that actually, because if you think about it, there are at the end of the book, there are two afterwards written one about it with from a security specialist. Um, actually here, let me just pull up in the wiki here. Uh, and there are two afterwards. One is from a security, someone who's in, in the industry is for security. And then, and they're both basically supporting, supporting the Marcus point of view as far as security verse. Uh, and it's, uh, Yes, I, they did, it didn't really represent both sides very well. Is basically the Department of Homes. It was almost. It was. <laughs> it was just. I felt, and and we've discussed this off uh, while we were reading the book separately. <laughs> yeah. uh, it felt like the film, the the nineties movie Hackers. It did. Yeah, totally where does. yeah, it absolutely does. Where the, the the bad guys are just the faceless. No, not really faceless, but they're just the demonized the mustache twirling. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. There's there's yes, no mustache twirling. Yeah. Right, it's very, it's a very vague motive, motive, and, and I mean, it worked as far as the storytelling goes. Uh, social commentary, it worked, but it, it kind of weakened it a little bit on the social commentary side when you don't represent both sides. Well, because we, I, we I don't even one try one to one represent the opportunities of this novel. Um, and, and I don't mean, I, I don't think this is a deal breaker by any stretch. I really enjoyed this book. But mm-hmm. One of the missed opportunities I think is less to do with Homeland Security. I think they were appropriately the, the vague boogeyman floating over the city. And I think that's yes. the, the fear that Cory Doctorow is trying to instill in his audience. And I think he perfectly achieves it. You don't know exactly what the threat is. You don't know exactly where it's going to come from. So you would be wise to operate with discretion and try and cover your tracks. But I think the element of the book that for me felt the most lacking was the relationship between Marcus and his father, where we get little glimpses of Marcus's father having once been someone who would have likely stood up to authority who for five days thinking his son had been killed then became someone who fell in lockstep with this government's response to cracking down on terrorists and having to give up his personal liberties and we get marcus's perspective of being really disappointed in his father but i feel like the book didn't quite help illustrate why Marcus's father had changed his position on some of this stuff. We get one line of dialogue from his mom, like when he thought you were dead, it wrecked him. It changed him. We just need to wait until he comes back to us. But it felt like a weak way to disclose that when there could have Mm -hmm. been an actual moment between father and son. We got some great moments between mother and son, but we didn't get that, you know, that realization or the, uh, the explanation directly from Marcus's father in a way that I felt uh, could have helped move Marcus along. Cause really, I think that would have served to even embolden Marcus. Like I've got to, I've got to get my dad back, but we just sort of get a vague understanding of that relationship. Well, and that's why, and I, honestly, as I was reading through this, this, this book takes place from the first person. It's written in the first person from Marcus's perspective. I honestly think that this book would have been better written from a third person point of view because they could have addressed that by having maybe a half a chapter or so uh, 
take place from his father's point of view and maybe just have a, a catch up of his yeah. personality of of where what his background and then bam set it and then the rest of the chapter goes on like it like you know from his, from Marcus and his father's conversation from where they left off a little bit and that's and it's and it's tough because because the first person narrative in this book really enhances the paranoia mm-hmm aspect of this book it makes the danger a lot more immediate but you're right absolutely leaves some gaps in in how you fill in uh exposition Mm -hmm. absolutely and and it's a very effective for that but there's always a trade-off because you have you lose some of the context from some of the other characters because he has his big group of friends who's playing this who's playing this uh this game where they're going out and when the terrorist attack happens and then we don't some of the characters just fall off. Yeah. And you're like, wait a minute, these are like his closest friends and they introduce other characters and, 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 and it, it plays in with that, but it, it sacrifices. Did you, did you think so there's, there's, there's one character, his best friend is madly in love with this young girl. Uh, what's her name? Van. Oh, a uh, van. Yes. And like, completely... feel like that was kind of a cop out because yes, van absolutely. has this heart to heart with Marcus at the beginning of the book saying like, I, I don't know that I agree with you. I can't go with you. We were taken to, you know, this terrible secret facility and we were practically tortured. So I'm not going to rock the boat. You can go and have your revolution, but I can't be your favorite to do it. And it felt like that was just a cop out so that she could just come in at the, in, on the last day, like the last chapter of the book to help Marcus out. Cause she was the last one he could turn to. And oh. it, just like, it felt like such kind of a, again, I think that kind of storytelling is a little lazy. You know, I, I just coming from a theater mm-hmm. perspective, like I love oh. plays where no character is wasted because you would have to have an actor backstage ready to be that character. And if you're only going to have them in one scene, then that's kind of a waste. I was actually in a play for a friend where my character only shows up in like the last scene of the play it was like a three-act <laughs> play and you're like well this is very inefficient writing because any of these other main characters could have fulfilled my role but <laughs> yeah. i'm here for the whole show just waiting for my two lines at the very end i mean well, no small parts just small actors but i mean damn well and in I van, felt like that's what they did oh. to van oh and van was what had so much potential because her fa- her parents escaped from north north uh north korea to, yeah. to, and and so it's like the absolute the, the absolute nightmare scenario for Marcus is North is basically North Korea and and they could have used her insight as like you know like as a contrast to right. as, as like to help provide contrast for Marcus's point of view on what's happening and how he's viewing his enemies versus like what they could be even become to show that something is even could be like to sh- to anchor of of stuff's bad now. Just think <laughs> about it. Really stop bad, from becoming but dead. it could be. <laughs> right. And and they completely waste her. Then at then at the end, she's I always liked you. And it's like, come on! Come on! Really? <laughs> so, I've always yeah. been madly in love with you, Marcus, because you're <laughs> an amazing strapping young man. Now I'm just, just with tongues. <laughs> and then at that point, I was just like, so are the days of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> but again, that, that, that was sort of the YA. This is, this is one of those things like, because it's YA, for some reason, you need to have not a love triangle. 
Because along the way, Marcus does meet up with another young woman who uh, is is extremely tech savvy and becomes a key element in mounting this resistance against the Department of Homeland Security, and they fall for each other. And I think that's actually a really sweet relationship, mm-hmm. the way that they they describe the two meeting. They meet over a, a ceremony where they're all trading encryption keys with their friends so that they know they can verify communication um, online, and it's a, it's a circle of trust. So if any of them, you know, break the circle, then they're all screwed, essentially. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, so he meets her at this little ceremony and then they start hanging out more and you get to learn little things about her and her family and, and how they get along. And so there's this, just this great, and so I'm reading this book going like, oh, how nice. They're just going to focus on this relationship and they're not going to do that stupid, like I'm torn between two potential suitors. But again, at the very end, they bring Van back to go, I've always yeah. been so in love with you. And yeah. Like, I do. I do like their bonding. You know, it's like, didn't you meet <laughs> Like, did you bond? Didn't you bond with your wife over dipping a laptop in seawater? Yeah, yeah. You know, like, I, I had sensitive <laughs> communique that I needed to keep, you know, out of the government's hands. And uh, <laughs> she was a stage manager in a theater show, and we felt like soaking a laptop in salt water and smashing it with a hammer would be the way to illustrate our undying love for each other. Oh, you know, it's just it's nothing. Nothing speaks to it better. You know. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, and, you know, they're going through this book. There are so many technical details, and you know, and I, I you know, I, I'm kind of a tech savvy guy, but I am uh, not that tech savvy. You know, <laughs> when it yeah. comes, I couldn't hack anything. I, I mean, I can figure out how Hangouts works slightly. So uh, you got your lower third working for this episode. Yes, okay, first time in. in Geek Book Club history. So Damn, you can see yeah. his name. <laughs> yeah, I don't have to have a piece of paper now. Well, but, so, uh, so we should probably delve into the tech of a 2008 mm-hmm. author talking about, you know, a 2014-2016 era technology defeat game. And this is one of those things, so like in my family, uh, I forget, one of the afterwords talks about, you know, if you're reading this book and you're really into these things, here are some resources that you can look up. Because what I do for a living is I play the defeatability game. I look at every piece of security and I look at how it can be defeated. And I look about, you know, like, how could I steal something? I don't steal things, but I just I can't stop thinking about what I could do in any given situation. And it really mirrored some of the conversations I've had with my parents and with my brother and my sister, who they're all super into uh, science and games and technology. And we'll play epic board games like really delving into the nitty gritty of the rules of a new game whenever we get it. And it's all because we're trying to see like, is there a way that I could exploit one of these rules for my benefit in this game? Mm-hmm. Right after nine uh, 11, all of us would have these sort of hushed conversations. Like, yeah, I was at this airport and the way that they were doing the scanning, I thought, Hey, if you did this, you probably could have gotten this by and through here. And it would have been really easy to defeat TSA if we had done that. And, and it was because we were all sort of still afraid some from the shock of, of mm. that attack. But it was also like, you know, if we can come up with this and we're just kind of spitballing this, you know, sitting around a dining room table, how, how much is this, of this is really keeping us safe? And, and Little Brother does that phenomenal job of, dif- of discussing security theater, you know, like mm-hmm. the illusion of security through these new 
uh, processes, through these new restrictions, through these new tracking elements. Um, but along the way, the book does, I think, get a lot of the stuff right with how Marcus sets up his resistance network and then what they do for sort of the low-tech solutions in messing up. Um, because it's never just like an outright, oh, we hacked the the Homeland Security mainframe and now we've got everybody's personal information and we can fight them with guns. It's always right. like a more passive resistance that mm-hmm. is... It's more realistic. people. Yeah, exactly. No, totally. Yeah. And well, and I love the fact that they set up, and, and this is me going into like uh, the history side of things. Like with, uh, I love how they talk about how they set up with the Xboxes, and and they have what was it? What was it? The Xbox Universal that they, they had. The Xbox this is the this is the era of the three sixty Xbox three sixties. Yeah. So I had because because the Xbox Universal to me just screamed of the X. What was it? What was it called? The Xbox Essential that didn't even have like a hard drive. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 and so like they were giving these out for free because because um, for anyone who's viewing this who's a, who is a gamer, and I guess it's retro game. Ooh, retro gamer now, old Xbox. How they how how the original Xbox lost money when they sold them at a loss, and so like they basically followed that through with this Xbox Essential, which they gave out for free to people, and uh, and they would yeah, load. The pair, joke pair. was that like the Xbox Universal was Microsoft's attempt at putting the hardware out for free because they were going to make all of their money on the licensing on the game on the game distribution and that as soon as, as soon as those boxes went out that essentially everybody just like hacked them open and used them to play their own games they even mentioned mame you know like arcade. Mm-hmm. yeah oh yeah arcade and religion. I was half I was half expecting a plot twist towards the end of all of the Xbox's uh, Red Ring of Deathing, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. So, what defeats all of the hackers in the end is yeah, Microsoft. They all overheat. Yeah. So, <laughs> the, 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 the last three chapters are just them going through the warranty process with Microsoft. But uh, you know, one and on a serious note, though, it was really interesting because they have what was the X Xnet, I believe, is what the, what the yeah, term the for it was, and uh, and then like that's how they communicate securely with each other and organize their resistance. At the same time, as you're going through the book, they're talking about how it's getting infiltrated by essentially the 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 the, the, the Department of Homeland Security and bringing out news and con- contrary and uh, essentially trying to molds essentially and uh, and that was really telling to me too because of the environment that we live in today that's it feels like that's a more ever-present threat today than than well it's more in our face today than it was back in 2008 and and and, and that to me like especially when they introduced the ring of trust so that they can verify communication between themselves and the entire time i'm thinking like there isn't actually a very good process for you to know if you're in the middle of some angry Twitter fight that you're actually communicating with a, another human in earnest and not someone who's just acting as some kind of disruptor. Why is it that our current our current quantity of social media, they do a terrible job of actually verifying who real people are? I keep thinking about things mm-hmm. like financial transactions and like, I don't know, maybe some sort of blockchain style technology to, to not fingerprint you, but to verify uh, content yeah. or to verify interactions might not be the future of our kind of uh, social media communication because look at how easily gamed 
all of these systems are by I mean, shoot, the, the FCC is easily gamed at this with the net <laughs> neutrality thing and all of these all of these uh, fake uh, be careful, Andrew. We don't hacked. want to start getting tinfoil hattie here. I'm just uh, saying, well, know, well, you know, listening I, to us right now. Oh uh, well, you know, well, well, I'll just log in my Xbox later. It will be okay. <laughs> I'll I'll mail you my my uh, my paranoid Android uh, oh, paranoid Linux uh, distribution. I'll take a, a screenshot of my encryption key and then share yeah. it on Snapchat because it'll, it'll disappear <laughs> after it's on sure, Snapchat. Sure, it'll disappear, you know. <laughs> yeah, oh, but but I mean, yeah, it's it's I mean, it's a it, especially with stuff that's been happening the last couple of years, yeah. it, it really shows verification is probably one of our weakest points on a security and societal level right now with the internet. And it's, and it is a, in this book really illustrated to me how uh, combined with everything that's been happening, how massive of a problem this is and how badly we need to address this today. And, and what, and, and how it can very easily lead to to freedoms going away quite easily, mm-hmm. and it's scary to be honest. Well, and and in a way that makes people feel like it's a good thing. I think that is one yeah, of the things that, that it's insidious. Why, why, why it's insidious, and why I kind of wish that they had been able to expand on the father a little bit more is because mm-hmm. obviously, whenever you have people who are afraid, you have someone that you can take advantage of, and and I think that would have been a, a nice counterbalance to Marcus's passion and Marcus's focus in taking them down. But I want to get to the point that you alluded to earlier, because once these kids start actually disrupting the activities of the DHS, it's not that this goes unnoticed um, because they Mm -hmm. have people who have infiltrated the XNet and you have politicians getting involved. And obviously San Francisco is still reeling from a terrorist attack. One of the things that's very interesting about this book is the terrorist attack actually isn't important after the attack goes down. Everything post-attack is really about Homeland Security's response and then Marcus and the ex-netters, how they're trying to fight what they feel are uh, overstepping of authority by the uh, Department of Homeland Security. So Mm -hmm. once it starts being discovered that there are active agents through this Xbox network of uh, Xnetters that are disrupting the security checkpoints of the DHS, um, the media gets involved and starts telling, Mm -hmm. spinning a narrative where, you know, from Marcus's point of view, he's doing this for very noble causes. But just like you would see on the nightly news, anyone who's disrupting law enforcement is a criminal. They, they are acting outside the bounds of U.S. law, of state law, and of this new federal protection uh, set up post, uh, you know, um, 9-11, you know, after uh, after the Patriot Act. Mm-hmm. Well, they so, had the Patriot Act 2, part 2 in this. Yeah. Like, it's a sequel. <laughs> Electric <laughs> Um <laughs> But I, Patriot Act 2, Tokyo Drift. You oh, know? No, wait, it was too, fat, too furious, and then it was Tokyo Drift. So, oh, no, no wait, 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 wait. So it's, so it's Patriot Act too secure, too furious. Yes, that's okay. That's terrible joke. Too I'm patriot, sorry. Too, it, too patriot, too act is not a thing. Um, but yeah. no, this is, this is what you were getting at too. Is because I felt Corey uh, Doctor O really nailed how our media discusses these types of events because very often, especially like you know, you were just bringing up net neutrality. 
if it's a techier, geekier thing, you almost see news reports that like kind of throw up their hands or shrug their shoulders and say like, well, you don't really care about this, but you know, some people say it's bad. Some people say it's good. We don't have an opinion because we know you don't have an opinion. And, um, Mm. and it was like, it was like, again, it was kind of perfect talking about this book tonight. Cause this morning I did uh good day LA on Fox, Mm. uh, Fox 11 the little local LA Fox affiliate just talking about, you know, like, Hey, what should you do to your phone? If you get a new phone, if you got a new phone for Christmas, how should you get rid of the information on your old phone? And I'm sitting there with the anchors on the, uh, on this Fox, uh, Fox affiliate. And I'm watching all of their eyes, like roll into the back of their heads. I saw that. (laughs) During one of the spots, like the anchor I was working with, she like literally comes out and says like, yeah, I don't really get into this kind of stuff. I just, right, I just, and it's, know, and it's my phone away, and you're like, but it's got your whole life in it, and you're on TV. You should. I know it's the perfect. It was, it's the perfect illustration of of it, there's an apathy level that's almost accepted. That's when it comes to your own personal security, and like yeah. when you're and and, and because it's, it's so proud that they 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 don't know about. Right. Well, and and it's so intimidating for people, especially like like and everyone knows people who 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 like who say family, for example, or or friends who who have been say tech savvy going up to a certain point, and then they're just like it's just too it's just too much, and then and then it drops off, and and then it becomes it's it's almost like if you if you've ever taken a foreign language class in college, and say you get sick for a week. And then you come back and you're just like, it's just, it's just too much for me to, to get back and, and to catch up again. And, and it becomes almost a coping mechanism to just ignore and just, and just accept that the ignorance of it, uh, uh, you know, and not, and, and it just, and it's dangerous. And, and it's, yeah. and it, because, just because of the fact that you, you really can't. And so they rely, so the more and more people end up relying on the few who understand it. But then the few who fully understand it are, might not be in positions of power that can fully. Or, or also, I, I think what, what we've seen recently and what I think the book does a very good job of illustrating is discrediting people who actually do know what they're talking about or who understands the ramifications of what's going down so that then you can push forward an agenda because later in the Mm -hmm. book it's disclosed we're kind of let's get into some sort of spoiler light okay okay it's it's later found out in the novel that one of the ex-netters has managed to smuggle out some video um of uh homeland security agents talking to politicians where Mm -hmm. they're actively using the portrayal of the ex-netters in the media as sort of misguided terrorist sympathizers, these kids who don't mm-hmm. understand what they're really getting into, and then the media portrays them as aiding, providing comfort to the enemy, and that that the uh, Department of Homeland Security is actively pushing this narrative because then it reinforces why they need to crack down so hard on security, and, and it's working, mm-hmm. that the media is going along with that narrative, is going along with that side of the story, and that it's it's actually just reinforcing for the citizenry why they should be allowing the Department of Homeland Security to act this way. And at the same time, 
anyone who's questioning their authority to respond to this terrorist threat is against the United States of America. It's got that George Bush feel. You're either with us or against us. And Dr. O'Neill's that that period's kind of crazy. You know, like Mm -hmm. every time period, excuse me, every time period has its own flavor of crazy. And for us, it was that kind of for us or against us. You're with us or you're against us. And Mm -hmm. uh, this book, I think, taps back into that. It it, it was almost like a little, uh, you know, what what do you call that? A a time capsule of. Yes, really. Absolutely. Time period. Well, and another interesting thing, too, and, it, and it's very much, and I was thinking, oh, oh, yeah, this is absolutely a product. Dr. O's point of view, this is absolutely a product of of him viewing the Bush presidency. Yeah. And, well, well, I won't, I won't say necessarily say Bush presidency, but just like. I, I think it's uh, right, 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 what administration right political. Well, and it's yeah. like right with other things that are happening now, it's like just right leaning to uh, uh, like how they like, was it the, I'll pull, I'll call it the MacGuffin evidence for lack of a better term. Okay. Where they, where they come up with, I guess we're already in the spoiler section. Yeah. Let's, we're, we're in spoilers. We're in spoiler. Town. Yeah. They, they come across, they, the evidence that they have is video of, of uh, the, well, the main antagonist for Marcus personally, which is, uh, what was her name from severe his point of view? Lady, is that severe haircut? Yes, severe haircut, and then uh, uh, some higher ups above her who were involved in, in in politics and in the Department of Homeland Security are talking about San Francisco specifically and how they're basically. Oh gosh, I don't. I even. I hate using the terminology that they use because it's so hateful. Oh, I know what you're talking and, about. Where one, like a U.S. senator, says uh, the rest of the country doesn't care about San Francisco because they just think they're a bunch of f words and sodomites. But we can. Yes, use and it's it made me uncomfortable. The rest of the the people afraid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it and it made me and it, and it made me uncomfortable, and 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 it's but like and that was very much a reaction to pre to pre Obama to the pre Obama era of war on terror, and it kind of dated it a little bit, but it's also like it was a little hitting the hammer over the head, like over the top almost, because I have a hard time believing that anyone. Would. I don't know. I mean, we just went through that race in Alabama with. Um, That's true. That you know what? That is true. And then oh. who was it? Let me look it up real quick here. It's the. Uh, uh, it was a GOP candidate for governor. I'd gladly execute a convicted sodomite, claiming that there should be some sort of return to biblical law. So, I don't think he was too far off the mark for the 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 more radicalized elements of the conservative party to be lockstep in that kind of narrative well and i, and I don't that's not a mainstream yeah. politics kind of idea right. absolutely see, that's not a mainstream we see evidence of those people at the fringes of of that side of society and i think they would be the people who would be more authoritarian in their approach to law enforcement and disaster response and uh, uh, responding to a terrorist attack also kind of falling in for the same kind of commentary on the morals or the values of an area. So that definitely felt like the boing boing editorialist 
mm-hmm. Cory Doctorow sneaking that little bit in just to make sure that the audience hated the officials running the DHS. Yes. Um, one thing I, I w- don't think he was too far off. I don't think he was too oh, yeah. far wrong. One thing I will say, I do feel I got the the impression that Marcus's the character Marcus's mother mm-hmm. is. I got the feeling was was almost Cory Doctorow inserting himself in. Oh, see, that and that, that's why I thought, like, the relationship... She's from England originally, too, but yeah, just, exactly. like, the way... Yes. So, with him being uh, British-Canadian. So, I really mm-hmm. felt that Marcus and... So, the relationship between Marcus and his mother was Cory Doctorow. Mm-hmm. That Marcus was Cory Doctorow's sort of youth and passion, what he remembers mm-hmm. his life being like as a, as a geeky, probably misfit teenager, and that... Um, his mother is sort of Cory Doctorow, the contemporary, the, the older, you know, the, the, the slightly wiser, you know, that kind of, uh, th- that kind of uh, duality. But that's also why I feel it's, it's, it's incomplete because Cory Doctorow obviously agrees with Marcus and the mother. They mm-hmm. are his voice and that there isn't a counterpart of Cory Doctorow's psyche that could have fit for the dad. Right. Well, and, and if and if this is going to be a commentary on the, what's happening in the past decade, and or and, and if if Cory Doctorow's goal is to is to com- convert or enlighten, mm-hmm. then you have to have to show the opposite side and. And well, but show that's, that's like represent it properly, and then show how it affect, how it's. Uh, oh, I totally, I totally agree. But this is also where I feel like that this is maybe the 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 limitation of Doctor O as an author of of mm. science fiction, and more the strength of Doctor O as an editorialist is like mm-hmm. I just it doesn't seem to me like he was properly able to imagine the counter arguments to his positions and to have a character really voice those. The character that comes closest is Van and she disappears for 90% of the book. The second closest is his father who is just basically a straw man against all of Marcus's fiery, youthful um, anti-disestablishmentarianism. And that's about it. I think the next closest person we get who might have a differing perspective from Marcus is the journalist that they turn to to try and get help in getting Marcus out of the situation. So once everything has really gone down, you know, all of the poop has really hit the fan. uh, Marcus finally decides that it's time to tell his story, even though it violates the uh, the nondisclosure that he signed with the DHS. And he reaches out to a journalist who finally puts his story together, co- corroborates his evidence. And it's determined that um, Marcus's friend, who he thought might have died after the uh, the bombing and the entrapment, um, is still alive. And so mm-hmm. that story gets published. And then that causes the last the last act of this book choose really quickly in the final escalation of Marcus versus the DHS. And it's kind of spurred along by his interaction with this journalist, but the journalist Mm -hmm. stands as sort of a, not a, not a counter argument, but just sort of a tangent to how good journalism should work in an age of authoritarian messaging. And so she doesn't necessarily 
disagree with him, but she doesn't also believe him until she has evidence. And so even though right. the rest of the media has been following lockstep with the DHS, um, she's, she's a writer for this really independent paper, and she's apparently been uh, heralded as like a civil rights writer. And in, 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 in the book, she's got a reputation for taking down large institutions. And well, so, yeah. Well, this is one... Oh, so, I'm sorry. Well, this is this is one section of the book that in the era of fake news really makes me wonder if 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 decisive action would have actually happened after this mm-hmm. at this point because in the era that we live in now it's I, I mean they okay we're already way into spoilers uh they okay so at the, in the climax of the novel they find uh marcus and they waterboard him mm-hmm. essentially and and at the end uh, one day and they and it turns out the uh was it the california highway patrol Come, come in. Local authorities for California come in and and and, and rescue him, um, based off of the you know this editorial. The article that was written. If that happened now, there would be two or three months or more of debate over whether this is fake news or not. Oh, is this what we should do? Is this real? I don't know. Yeah, because everyone no because the there's with the era of fake news, there's nobody is sure anymore about what's real news. I think what's interesting is this current political climate that we find ourselves in now, I think actually has been responsible for some of the best journalism we've seen of the last, Mm -hmm. like, they have to step it up years. Yeah. They have to step up their game because at the same time, what, what I think Dr. O missed, missed this missed side of was uh, an actor in a political role who whose main purpose was to disrupt the normal functioning of the agency or the government that he's been put in charge of. And Mm so, you know, like, even though we we might be seeing some great hard hitting investigative journalism happening right now, but every day there's a new outrage that distracts us from what happened the day before. And I think that's actually a tactic that we really couldn't have conceived of Mm -hmm. eight years ago. Oh, well, and it's, 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 couldn't have imagined that, that information being weaponized. And I think this actually comes to a fun point are like some of the things that Corey Doctorow got wrong in mm-hmm. his depiction of the future, because I think well, he grossly underestimated social media. Yes, absolutely. And, and it's, and it comes in because there are, there are new articles coming in about, uh, was it former face people who work at Facebook and talking about how Facebook is basic is basically shredding and social media in general, not just Facebook, Facebook, it's the biggest social media platform, but like how Facebook, they're not going to shut us down. Right. Yeah. But like, but like how social media has basically shredded our like social mores. Social mores. Yeah. Yes. And how, and, and it's basically where the, we boiled down to short-term gratification and short, it's all short-term. It's all short-term and, and distractions. And, and, and there's, it's hard to, I mean, gosh, hindsight's twenty twenty, but it's one of those things that's so insidious and so gradual over a decade that, that 
no one really could. I feel, you know, I feel like no one really saw it coming and how this yeah. was weaponized. Well, and, and I think, I don't even think that the people in charge of it, what they were trying to do was maximize quality time on site. Right. So Facebook is designed right. not to inform, not to show you both sides, not to challenge your assertions. It's designed to reinforce how you already feel about something and to gratify your own sense of self in a way that will keep you on Facebook and consuming things through Facebook. And so that's, that I think is, is one of the major, um, the major criticisms that if you, if you do a Google search for a former Facebook executive says social media ripping society apart, you'll, you'll get a more nuanced uh, discussion and examination of what we're <laughs> yeah. talking about. Right I know. Now. I'm very much like, it, it, like just even thinking about it is making my palms sweat right now. Totally. But and so, yeah. what, what they lost sight of was in creating this system, in creating this framework to only validate the ideas that you already hold as true, so that you're never challenged with an outside idea, and by trying to weaponize information in a way that will keep you locked into using Facebook, it left them completely unprepared for when someone with an, ac- an actual agenda used their platform against, you know, uh, uh, you know, our election or against, you know, uh, an unpopular bill or something like that. Mm-hmm. that well, and, that and social media has been, has been uh, activated to this degree. Right. It's kind of out of control of the people who actually created these frameworks, these systems. Well, and, and also just, just to be fair, like this can political, political, um, People from or, or, or um, agents from both sides can take advantage of this mm-hmm. and now, and and it blurs a line of truth and reality. Yeah, that well, it, it definitely creates a, a very concerning element. Where I think before, when we've had really divisive politics, I feel like previous generations of people had a better understanding of what the problem was and they just Mm -hmm. viscerally disagreed on how to deal with the problem um like especially looking at like the the politics of the 60s and 70s -hmm. i think a lot of people would would have pointed to social unrest or or uh income inequality or crime statistics and said these are the problems but then they would have had visceral disagreements as to how to fix them now we live in a political climate where good 20 to 30% of the population just has a completely different idea of what reality is. And we can't even agree on what the problems might be, you know, climate change. We're still having right. big debates about whether or not climate change is a real thing when that kind of doesn't matter anymore. If you want clean air, you want clean water, you want cleaner neighborhoods, you want a cleaner distribution of energy, you want a better and cheaper distribution of energy. There's no reason not to, invest in new methods of energy generation but you say climate change and everyone flips their wig and we go down a rabbit hole of whataboutism and science fantasy and we never actually get to addressing the real problem so 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 cory doctor if you're watching <laughs> you've got we have we have laid the groundwork for you my friend well, the, okay, you, so this is what's hilarious is that you, I didn't know. You, you had to school me on this. I, I recommended this book and that you pointed out that there is um, a sequel. There is a sequel to this book uh, called yes, Homeland. Yes, Homeland is what it's called, yes. Which apparently was also sued by, I think it was Fox. Fox. Really? 
I didn't know they have this. A show, they have a show called Homeland. Oh, <laughs> they oh, produce, oh, they oh. produce Homeland, and so it was like sharing the same name. <laughs> so now I need to read this book and see if oh crap, we're able to that. retcon. <laughs> Uh, if he, if Cory Doctorow is able to retcon Little Brother to fit into the world of today with mobile devices that are far more capable and a weaponized social media, because um, that's another thing that I think is sort of charmingly off about his depiction of the future is just how brutal the smartphone economy has become. Because his his description of people using phones in this book, it sounds like most people are still using less expensive um, feature phones. Like, yes, the, the slider phones. Yes, slider phones and keyboards. And he, he talks about like, well, I had to keep pushing the buttons on this phone to keep the screen so that it wouldn't get locked. And you're like, what about a phone that has like biometric security on it? You know, like that that. That was only a couple years away, and it seems like you kind of missed where all that would go. It sounds like Marcus's phone is basically just like a fancy flip phone. Yes, um, every, pretty much everyone's is. Well, well, because wait a minute, what? I'm I'm terrible. I'm, ter- I'm a terrible IT guy. But like, when did the iPhone originally come out? The first gen iPhone come out? Well, what it year? was about ten years ago. So that that's that's exactly oh, it. If, okay. If he was starting to write this book in that. 2006 to 2007 era you think about like the idea of a smartphone was a very niche business driven Mm -hmm. economy pdas Um, were still a thing pdas were still a thing and uh you know his depiction of the xbox i mean we we kind of lose sight of like it was only 10 years ago that consumers had very little interest in picking up a business grade mobile communicating computer phone um and so that really feels like the perspective that this book was written from that mm-hmm. most consumers would just have fancy entertainment feature phones. Not everyone would be walking around with these ridiculous pocket supercomputers that we have today. And I think it's charmingly, it, this is one of those things that definitely makes the book feel of its time. And, mm-hmm. and how Cory Doctorow was so right on the pulse with things like media missed social media because he also just didn't anticipate the iPhone revolution. The consumer right. was getting on board with, uh, with uh, pocket app-driven uh, smartphones. You know, and I just looked it up. Cor- we're in luck. Cory Doctorow has a Twitter. So <laughs> we, <laughs> we really have a Twitter guy. Him. Well, no, not harassing, but just like, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the, I, you know, I really think there is a, a lot of creative material mm-hmm. with all that's happened in these last in this last decade. Um, that and this is also having me not read Homeland yet, right. um, which I really want to read now. Um, but I like it's especially with the stuff that's happened in the last five in the since 2013. Even mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of social commentary and drama and education that can happen that he could bring forward with these characters. I feel like that that could entertain and educate. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. But I, I will be curious to see because Homeland was, was published in 2013. Yes. What, what his take? Because Cory Doctor. So I read Pirate Cinema, which takes place a little 
further in the future from when it was originally written and is more mm. commentary on copyright and entities like the MPAA. And it's about a team of, of spunky tech savvy uh, video mashup artists that try and take down a totalitarian government in the UK through, mm. through their ability to remix and mash up video clips and movies. And it's got this very idealistic, like, you know, just one really good piece of mashup art can change the world. And I don't think it's (laughs) anywhere near as successful a story as, uh, as little brother, like little brother, I think much better illustrates the dangers while also Mm -hmm. grounding the protagonist's uh, resistance in a way that you feel is at least somewhat remotely possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, pirate cinema feels to me more like some sort of like more like the Technicolor hackers hack the planet. We can magically win <laughs> through the power of love and hacking and movie yeah. editing. Um, yeah, it doesn't work as well for me. Yeah, well, it's like share yeah. a bunch of things. Like there's the obligatory scene in in this in Little Brother that that also happens in uh in pirate cinema. Like, well, people throw away so much food, you can just pull things out of the garbage and eat that, and it's not really bad for you. Yeah, like, like dumpster diving. It's like a yes pirate cinema. Here, it's just a throwaway bit. Well, yeah, I was gonna say is yeah, it's in this, and it's and he's and he's like, well, I just won't think about it, you know, whatever. One, yeah, it's it's. I I didn't realize that was kind of a thing in pirate cinema in there and. Yeah, in Pirate uh, Cinema, he actually like spends a copious amount of time explaining like how these characters can survive because they're not making any money on distributing content that they produce because it's mostly taken from copyrighted sources and remixed. So one of the ways that they're able to just feed themselves are teams of people will go out and run through all the dumpsters around the UK finding, you know, produce that's only one day bad and <laughs> Oh, if there's a little bit of mold on these strawberries, you can still eat the rest <laughs> of the strawberries, and and like it, it's explained, like because there is a culture. There, I, I forget what that's called. It's not dumpster diving, but there, there's a culture of people who will try and recover food that you know it's just produce that looks a little funny, so they throw it out instead of selling it for a reduced price, but because they can't make. Oh it, yes, get rid of it. There was a, a big problem here in California with like Trader Joe's where. Um, they would be locking up these dumpsters, but there wasn't a way for them to donate food to like food banks safely because it was perishable. So state law was getting in the way, but you would have all of this food that was still good, but it was like one day past the sell by date, which isn't really a a marker of when that food goes bad. So it was just getting thrown out and a lot of people were really upset about it. Um, And that's changed since. But again, of that time when pirate cinema was being written, that was actually a big concern for a lot of communities. Like we're throwing away perfectly good food instead of going to uh, being put to better use. Well, and I, you know, for me, I'm I'm from the Midwest and and I'm, I'm an Ozark boy. So, you know, it's, it's one of those like, for us, it's, it's, it's a little different where, you know, we, you know, we have a plan where if, you know, if everything hits the fan, well, you know, we got a farm we go down to and we'll just go on the hunt, you know? So it's, one of those, so it's, a, it's a little different, but absolutely. Like I see, and it, it's in, those are valid, absolutely valid concerns. And it's, it's interesting to see those brought up in these stories and it's important that they're brought up in these stories because it's, it's almost like it's in and as our audiences and people who follow us know we're huge Star Trek fans and oh. and it's and it's 
And this type of stuff that's brought up, and and, and I'm, I, you can't see it, but I'm I'm patting on the book right now. Um, these <laughs> these stories Best are Christmas it, gift for you ever. Giant yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, you know, I'm like, well, in this book here, it's 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 important to bring these up in in our media and and stuff that we can and things that we consume because it's too easy in this society that we live in to just willfully ignore the problems and challenges that we face yeah, in the future. I, I think, I think it's that constant debate we have as to what type of dystopian future we're going to have. Is it going to resemble something more like 1984, which I mm-hmm. feel the threat of little brother is probably more in line with an Orwellian style uh, authoritarianism. But I kind of feel like the major one of the major threats facing our country is the threat of distraction, more of a brave new world. Yes. Of, of and, and it's terrifying. It really is. Well, and and we see we see the downside of people when apathy rules and when people mm-hmm. aren't involved and they don't participate. And then we've seen some recent successes where people actually got off their asses to do something. And wouldn't you know it? situations got a little bit better and if we were to keep putting some pressure on like you might be able to affect some actual change um perish the thought that people actually invest time effort energy and money into making their own lives better (laughs) right and and it's and it's all about connecting the personal connection yeah and that's one thing that this book that this that little brother does really well and just you know, with 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 the datedness of certain aspects and and flaws in certain aspects, one thing that this book really hits home and really does fantastically is hitting the personal consequences and personal challenges and personal uh, cost mm-hmm. of what's happening, and and translating that to my God. This could really happen to us yeah. very, very easily. Totally. I just thought it was and, really disappointing that the last chapter of the book is Marcus picking up that portable rail gun and running off with Vanessa Williams to like go shoot like, all the bad guys in their limos. And I like it just felt so trite. You know, here was this book that had this, you know, beautifully oh wait, no, that was eraser. You know, <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm sorry, I got confused yeah i know the whole time just imagine demarcus with this arnold schwarzenegger like you know yeah. we're gonna hack the planet man before before we wrap all this up i did want to get one other thing because there's something about something that cory doctorow does does it's just this beautiful little series of love letters the beginning of every chapter where he's writing about a bookstore that was meaningful to him And um, Mm -hmm. I've got the list here. Like he's got like little mom and pop shops. He's got, you know, mega chains like Barnes and Noble. But Mm -hmm. one of the ones that stuck out for me again, from when this book was written to now the, how this company exists today was Amazon. Mm -hmm. And so when you read the book, because again, he's writing this 2006, 2007, probably. And he's talking about like how amazing you can buy books on the internet. And to now, I wonder what Cory Doctorow of today thinks of the company that puts always listening speakers in your home and tried this year to to sell low-cost 
um, smart locks so that their delivery people could enter your home to drop off your packages. I, I feel like if Cory Doctorow were to write a book today doing this, that Amazon probably wouldn't have gotten one of his love letters uh, for how amazing bookstores are in this day and age. So, so Cory Doctorow, if you end up seeing this... <laughs> Please. How do you feel about Amazon now? What do you do? You please have- write a third book in the series, <laughs> and because it, there's so much potential with this. Yeah. So yes, please. It's hilarious. <laughs> I was just reading that going. I, I don't think he's as big a fan of Amazon today as he was back then. Well, Amazon, Amazon, Google, or Facebook, or any of them, because these are real challenges that we face as a, as a society and how we're going to go forward from this. I'll be really and, surprised if over the next year we don't see more activity at the federal level for, like, you know, trade involvement in Google and Facebook, looking at mm-hmm. like, uh, what type of anti-competition or... Uh, different issues because one it's just i don't i don't think they curry a lot of popularity with the current uh politicians that are in charge but two it's you know google facebook to google facebook amazon like the three biggest companies on the planet that traffic and user data and are also used to sort of influence people's behavior uh, yeah absolutely and it's well and god gosh we're in uncharted territory right now with this mm-hmm. because they're pushing out they're pushing out this is this ai assistant uh these ai assistant products always listening products that so quickly that people are anxious to just use these features without actually thinking about what what the consequences are yeah I mean, good gosh! What was it? Uh, Google the Google Home Mini? They had to def- they had to disable an entire feature to supposedly you know <laughs> fix that not listening I, to I, you twenty four seven. Yeah, I love I loved how that went down too. It was only supposed to work when <sighs> you tapped it, but then the capacitive touch was broken, and so it was listening all the time. And so Google's solution was, well, we'll just deactivate that feature. We're not going to fix the product. We're not going to fix yeah, it. I, like, I, We're just going to cut the no, off. And you're I have right. no confidence that it that's actually fixed. <laughs> so, and it and it becomes a problem of consumer trust because you have to right. you have to in, on an individual <laughs> basis examine what the claims are mm-hmm. versus what the re, what the most likely reality is because there's no way to know based and off of th- once once you have decided what you think the most likely reality is is then see. Is there any reputable evidence to judge that assertion by which, again, it's getting increasingly difficult to find something that's not been tainted. But um, let's wrap this up so we can can kind of put it in this. Um, I I thoroughly enjoyed this book. Um, Me too. (laughs) For for some of its issues, and and I do feel that there are some – there is an issue of balance in this book – what what I think is is wonderfully achieved though is that sense of of sort of uh, foreboding and uh, um not 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 fear but anxiousness like you're you're sort of generally mm-hmm. anxious as to what's going on with Marcus throughout the entire book. Uh, Andrew, do you do you think that this exists as one of those good all rounder reads, or do you think that this really should stay firmly more towards? the young adult audience. I mean, I know there's like sort of a popular trend right now in grownups reading young adult fiction. It's, it's a, it's an easy and it's an accessible um, style of literature for people to get into. 
but do you think that this book resonates more with um with with older audience members or do you think that it will have the desired effect because obviously Cory Doctorow is trying to plant a little germ, a little seed of an idea yes. in budding young minds. Do you think that it achieves, it would achieve that for a younger audience? You know, I'll be honest. Whenever you first, <laughs> when I, okay, so you, you first suggested this book and I'd never really heard of it. And I went into the library and I was like, you know, where's little, and I went up to our, to the little teller, you know, and asking, where's, where the is librarian? You, 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 yes, thank you. Face. Oh gosh! Oh, I'm so sorry for ever. I'm so sorry for every librarian ever. <laughs> my apologies. The clerk. Uh, I, I'll type on my Twitter. Apology later. Calling them stewardesses, aren't you? Yeah. Don't worry. I have my. I'll have my my Twitter apology set up here. You know. But um, see that you do. <laughs> see that you do. <laughs> but. Uh, but so I went up to the librarian and, and and was asking, and she said, "Oh, it's the young adult," and that was kind of, you know, you know. But to be honest, I think, and it made of all of the books that we have read on on this channel and through this series, this has made. This has spurred more critical thinking for me and examining my own opinions and positions than any other book that we've read so far. And then being a young adult novel, it also uh, uh, just just some inside baseball. I had to kind of get through this kind of quickly through <laughs> through our through, you know, as we're going through because it was a pretty busy month, busy month for me. So for anyone getting into this, it's a quick read. Yeah, and. That that's a benefit for it, but it doesn't take away. It's one of those few young adult novels that does not take away from the message, drama, or suspense. Yeah, at all. And so I would recommend this for anyone, just because it it can it can it's insightful and it really can help you reevaluate your own set beliefs on your own security, your own trust. In in the in the government and in motivations, and and because that's something that we in this day and age that we forget that's good to reexamine and reexamine our our set beliefs because it's so easy to get super set in our own beliefs totally. and 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 ignore everything else. Well, and there, there's something really sweet about the book too, and and why I think it works it works well for grownups. But that I think it could work really well for kids is I, I look at young mm -hmm. people coming up into an era where most of the computers they use are going to be glued shut. You know, like mm -hmm. I remember disassembling the family 8088 XT DOS computer and my dad soldering <laughs> stuff on the inside of it. And not like you grow up and you're not afraid to take something apart. Like you grow up mm -hmm. like that and like you want to do the brakes on your car. Well, it's a puzzle and you've got to put everything back together again. It's still going to work. It's going to be great. Mm -hmm. You're not afraid that, you know, something's going to go Borg. Um, what this book also does really well is sort of empower the reader to consider that there could be alternatives to what, like, corporations have fed you for how you mm -hmm. should use the Internet or how you should consume things on the Internet, how you could make your own stuff, how you could, you know, utilize your own sort of uh, communication standard. You Why use Snapchat if you're worried about your 
privacy if you could come up with your own limited network of communication just for your friends. Like take mm-hmm. it off of major services and, and do it yourself. And that there are resources for you to be able to do these things. Um, that, that to me is really, I think, the greatest success of this for a young adult audience, not for a grown-up mm-hmm. audience, but is empowering them to consider you have all of these tools at your disposal. You don't need to do exactly what these companies say you should do with their products. You know, cracking them <laughs> mm-hmm. open a little, peeking under the hood, this should be okay and you should be able to do it. Well, and the nice thing about this too is, you know, you're talking about how they're talking about they're they're targeting the young audience, but this book also, I mean, they say don't trust anyone over over 25. As someone who's 30 years old for myself, it's one of those things that, like, it shows that you shouldn't be afraid to trust people who necessarily are even younger than you who might understand this and yeah. and uh, to be. It's a it's a universal message. It's the delivery and how you present it that's tough general, generationally, mm-hmm. and how it's a universal problem and universal issues that we need to address. And and if we don't address this universally, then then it can come, become dystopian. Totally. I and agree. so and yeah. and that in a nutshell, or in uh, less than ninety minutes is the uh, dystopian young adult sci-fi classic little brother uh cory mm-hmm. doctorow and now i'm gonna have to pick up homeland i'm i'm mad at myself I know, me too <laughs> uh, and so i'm gonna have to pick it up too because i want to read it now <laughs> before we jump uh before we jump into uh, next month's uh next month's book we did have a message here from a uh let me see if I'm pronouncing this correctly. Was it Stephanie Carlson? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she had a comment about your slip of the tongue on calling librarians library clerks. Oh, no. Actually, oh. Your girlfriend used to be a librarian, and uh, she <laughs> is shaking her head in disgust at you right now. Well... There's a couch here I can go to, and uh, sleeping on the couch, buddy. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> I, love, I love it when she jumps in because it's like I get a little bit more insight into Andrew's personal life. <laughs> um, so what we agreed, we already talked about what book we were going to be reading next month. I've yes. already forgotten what it is. It is the Left Hand of Darkness. The Left Hand of darkness yes we're gonna have so, uh, a link up for that here let me let me uh, pull it up I, I unfortunately i left the book um i'm actually with fa- visiting family right now so i actually uh, left the book in, at my my uh current place of residence but um it's it's a science fiction novel about um here it's um here let me just pull up so this is a novel by Ursula K. Le, Le Guin? Le Guin? Mm-hmm. I don't know Le, Le her last name. So what I'm stoked is uh, originally published in 1969. And mm. I'm a huge fan of classic older sci-fi, so, you know, that, that sort of Star Trek era, uh, OG mm-hmm. Star Trek era of science fiction. And so uh, this, the novel follows the story of Jen Lee I, a native of Terra, who was sent to the planet Gethin as an envoy of the Ekumen, 
a loose confederation of planets. I'm butchering all of these names. I hope they have phonetic uh, pronunciation <laughs> yeah, guides because this because this this novel is going to mess me up for for next month. <laughs> But um, uh, but he is stymied by his lack of understanding of Gethenian culture. Individuals are ambisexual with no fixed sex. Uh, has a strong influence on the culture of the planet, creates barrier of understanding. So Left Hand was among the first books published in the feminist science fiction genre, of which I was not entirely aware. Um, Me neither. Yeah. That, that was a, a, a decidedly separate genre or subgenre of sci-fi. Um, so that's what we're going to be covering next month. Uh, you guys will have links below where you can maybe shop it. But again, we always wholeheartedly recommend that you mm-hmm. check out your local library, see if you can pick up a copy, support your Absolutely. local library. And um, we'll, uh, we'll check back in. You can uh, give us a follow on Twitter at the geek book club. And, uh, and we do finally have a Facebook page for and the- Instagram as well. And an Instagram. Sorry, I, I keep slipping on the Instagram plugs, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, and if you'd like to uh, chat with us you know, sort of individually or separately, you can find uh, Andrew on Twitter as at Fat Produce. And I, of course, am at Some Gadget Guy. And uh, that's that's what we're going to be covering next month. Definitely jump in. We want to thank those people. We had some people uh, throwing some comments throughout the live chat. Uh, some of them were a little snarkier than others, and some of them had language mm. that I couldn't repeat on a show that we're trying to keep somewhat PG. <laughs> uh, but again, we got that little plug from uh, a, a little insight as to uh, Andrew and his relationship disaster there. So that was. <laughs> and uh, Juan yeah. Salazar uh, has a plug here. Do Disasters Artist by Greg Sestero at some really? point, please. Let's, let's throw that on the list. We'll yeah, absolutely. We'll um, write that down here and we'll add it to our list here because that's really fascinating to me. The, I've, I've, that's come up to me that I've heard of disaster artists several times. So, yeah, absolutely. So, um, I don't know. Let, let's, uh, let's powwow. Maybe that'll be our, uh, our book for February. But the end of January, we're going to be reading The Left Hand of Darkness. So definitely tune back in for that. want to thank everybody for jumping into this live stream. Hope your holidays have been holly and jolly and grand. You got to spend some good time with family and friends or at least some good food, good drink. And that uh, mm-hmm. you're getting some downtime, some rest, and that you're safe in the world. So uh, we'll catch you guys next month with The Left Hand of Darkness. And uh, thanks for watching and or listening to The Geek Book Club. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) See you guys. Thank you.